Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 31, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, where we will be looking at Chapters 65 through 66 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of palate cleansers. Now you may be wondering why did I choose Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite as the title for this episode, and it's because that episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine remains probably one of my all-time favorite examples of a palate cleanser in a dramatic series. For the uninitiated, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite is the last episode before the final invasion of Cardassia in Deep Space Nine. It's the rare moment of pure levity in that season of the show. It's the rare episode that has nothing to do with the stakes of the galaxy or the Federation or the planet or anything like that. It literally is just about a small, low-stakes game of baseball between Captain Benjamin Sisko and his Vulcan rival from his days in the Academy. In addition to being a lot of fun, while it doesn't advance the plot, it tells us a lot about the characters and who they are in this relatively low-stakes setting. Um, And it's a lot of fun. I also love that episode, and I love the name of it, for a reason that you will find out during my interesting fact. Awesome. So now for the boring bits that I say every episode. Each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's sphere through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an interesting the most of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin... Let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, can I just say spoilers? We've already done 90-something-odd episodes. Spoilers? Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Wise Man's Fear? Major spoilers. Everything else in the Kingkiller Chronicle? Probably spoilers. Needless to say... You've been warned. Spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Before we begin in earnest, I would like to let everyone know that we have chosen to do our own kind of palate cleanser in the form of we have been reading The Wise Man's Fear with y'all for over a year. We are nearing the midway point of the book. We aren't there yet, but we are ending on page 500. I want to read something else with y'all. So we're going to. I don't know how long it will take. We might do a seven episode arc the way that we did with the Starless Sea. We might make it smaller. We might make it bigger. It really depends on how the book that we choose chunks up. Right now, we are in between two choices. Both of them are by N.K. Jemison. One is The City We Became and the other one is The Killing Moon. Right about now is the last chance that you have to let us know if you have a preference. Will is reading The Killing Moon. We are probably going to record the next Sandman episode next weekend. So I don't know if this will be out in time for you to actually give us an idea of whether or not you want one versus the other. Or if you're like, no, no, please don't. 
I'm sorry, but we're going to do it anyway. With that out of the way, I am going to try to not be tongue-tied while I describe the eight pages that we read this time in 45 seconds or less. All right, so I've got my stopwatch ready. Are you ready? Maybe. All right, in three, two, one, raspberries. No, stop that. No, 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 no. You do not get to just throw off the cadence by saying the icky, icky fruit. I think it'd be really funny if you ended up getting raspberries on, a, on an eight page section. I could probably read the entire section in less than four. No, I can't. All right. In three, two, one, go. We wrap up the narrative threads left over from the, the mayor is being poisoned storyline with Quoth having been given new, even more extravagant rooms to which his first visitor is Brayden, who promptly informs Quoth that he shouldn't be displaying a ring of bone from Stapes. They play more tack, and Brayden tries to explain to Foth the subtleties and the beauty of the game. Of course, Foth is confused that the point isn't just to win. Later, while Foth is practicing his loot, we find out the reason for the room upgrade when Alvaron pays an unexpected visit. The section wraps up with even more fruitless flirting between Foth and Denna. Oh, la 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 la. I gave myself tongue twisters. Why did I do that? <laughs> I don't know, but you came in at 37 seconds. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for indulging me. Naturally. No raspberries. No raspberries this time. Correct. It's been a while, and the next however many episodes are a reprieve from that, because we are not doing a challenge <laughs> during the palate cleanser. Yeah. Let's go ahead and dive in. It should be kind of obvious, but I would like to go over why we chose palette cleansers as our lens. So, like we've already said, this represents a section of the interest curve of the overall book where both Quoth and we, the audience, get a little bit of a reprieve. There's not a whole lot of intense action or anything like that. It's characters relaxing, having a chance to just talk. The tension is over, Alvaron is safe, Quoth isn't dead, there's no running away from the mayor's estate in the middle of the night trying not to be placed in a gibbet. We don't have any intrigue, we don't have any real stakes at this point. Our central conflict has been resolved for the most part. And there's a little bit of an exposition dump. And it also is a chance to just see the minds of these characters. So why don't you explain interest curves to those of us who haven't studied game design? Well, it's game design, it's narrative design. Interest curves are in everything. So ultimately, the way that people get hooked into a story is there's something interesting. And then the interest goes up, be it a mystery, be it questions that have to be answered, be it action sequences, be it what's to the left What's to the right? Something has to happen. What do I do here? What are the characters doing here? Okay, so now I'm at the mayor's estate. Oh crap, he's being poisoned. But you can't just keep ramping the interest up and up and up. 
it's kind of like what happens in a lot of the major comic book movies. If you take them as a whole, at a certain point, there is no escalation. And so you have to have a falling action. There has to be a reprieve from that. You have to have something where there's a valley. There's a little bit of time to rest. These times are also really the great character building moments. These are the times when our characters have the chance to just sit and talk and learn about themselves and one another. To bring it back to, again, superheroes and specifically Marvel, recent movies have been all about Thanos trying to just destroy half the universe. Well, the next logical step, if you're going to ramp more shirt up, is to have someone that wants to destroy all of the universe. But we're getting bored. It's leveling off. That stake doesn't seem very high. And so you get into something a little more introspective, like WandaVision or Loki, or you get into something where the stakes are very much lower, Hawkeye. Still a very good show. And within it, it has its own rising action and falling valleys and ups and downs to help guide you through the interest in it. Give you little breaks, bring you right back up. And all of those come before like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which is probably based off of the trailers going to be bonkers. It is going to be all the interest all in your face all at once. So we've had our falling action, our valley, our palate cleanser, and now we're going to just go like absolute bananas. The thing about it is that when things go absolutely bananas, it's very difficult to do the relationship building side of things. And you have to hint at things, whereas you can really show them in these moments of falling action in these interest curve valleys. And this is an excellent example of one of these valleys within the Kingkiller Chronicle. Things are secure, for the most part. Foth is not in dire danger. For the most part. At least he doesn't think he is. And so the interesting thing that happens at the top, Quoth gets new rooms. He's not exactly sure what the point of getting new rooms is, but he likes them. Enough. He does, however, manage to find something to complain about, namely that getting room service is going to take forever and the food will be cold by the time it reaches him. So it kind of reminds me of somebody that I know who was a really good friend of mine when I was a teenager and we're still on friendly terms, but... They have been given a lot more opportunities to do a lot more cool shirt, including traveling the world. And I swear that if you just took their reaction when they got back to every trip that they ever took, everything's just a freaking hellhole because (laughs) there's no mention of the awe-inspiring vistas. There's no mention of the architecture that is older than the country that they came from. There's no talk about people that they met. There is talk about, I broke my toe. I lost my luggage. I missed my flight. It's all very hard to listen to when you're like, but but you went to Europe. You got to be an exchange student for like two weeks in France and you got to do all this cool stuff. And all I get to find out is that A bag of things that you bought got stolen. What? Oh, well, I don't get souvenirs. I I don't care. I want to hear about your cool experiences, not the little bummers that happened along the way. 
but that's what it feels like Quoth is doing. I have this amazing new set of rooms that are like four rooms that are bigger than the entire inn that I used to live in a little tiny closet of. And he's like, and now I find out that the food is going to be colder. And I'm like, but it's closer to the mayor, which actually means it's probably not going to be colder because they're probably going to serve you first. Stop complaining. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, pretty much the first thing that happens as soon as he's really gotten a chance to move in is Brayden comes a Colin to do a little bit of housewarming. And a little bit of tack playing. So Quoth has learned a few things by now. He lets Brayden just admire his ring collection in the sitting room while Quoth pretends to go make himself busy somewhere else. And then comes back and has a in-depth conversation about the weird white ring that Stapes gave him. This ring turns out to be a ring of bone. Which generally means a great debt that cannot be repaid. And it's also interesting in that whereas the gold and silver and iron rings are all pretty much just a little game that the nobility play with, the bone ring is far older and it's from the common people. And when the common folk give rings, they do not do so lightly. It is meant to mean something profound and deep that is not about status, but it's about relationship. It is not merely to say, I am greater than or less than you. It is meant to say, I care about you. I owe a debt to you. What I also find interesting here, though, is initially Quoth guesses that it was made out of horn. And Brayden says that a ring of horn shows enmity, powerful and lasting enmity. Quoth still can't read stapes. For all of his... I am really good at everything, including picking up on people's moods and being able to be a social chameleon and playing court and all that stuff. He can't figure out that Stapes holds him in great esteem now, has changed his mind about Quoth's intentions and is now indebted to him. I think part of it is that Quoth is someone who introduces complications in pretty much everything. He catastrophizes. Part of it is he does not know how to deal with someone who is 100% open and above board and can be taken at face value. I would argue also, though, that he is not good at handling or understanding people who are playing games with him and obfuscating their true intentions. Because he tells Brayden that he trusts him. And Brayden has openly admitted that he is using Quoth. But because Quoth knows that, he thinks he can guess at any motives that Brayden has? Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> but now, let's talk about Tack. So, Quoth thinks that he's gotten pretty okay at Tack. Not good, just okay. He wants to brute force a win out of Tack, and that is not the point of Tack. To be fair, he hasn't really done anything but almost beat someone. If you look at the scoreboard, though, an almost win is the same as a loss. Like, what is it? Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades? Yeah. 
his mentality though is, well, the point is I have to win. And this actually kind of angers Braden because the point is not to win. The point is to play a beautiful game. It's to have fun. It's to challenge yourself. It's to find opportunities to employ creative problem solving. It's a chance to express yourself. The closest that I can assume that Patrick Rothfuss was trying to connect tack to is probably Go. Obviously, since the book was written, there has been a game created that is now Tack, and that was created by James Ernest from Cheap Ass Games, which we still haven't played, and we ought to. We own it. We really should play this. We also really should play this in front of a camera so that y'all can see how bad we are. <laughs> Heck, we've even met James Ernest. <laughs> I've TA'd for James Ernest. Right. <laughs> Uh, he was a sub for the teacher that I actually TA'd for, so I had to help with all the administrative crap. So when I look at Braden's philosophy on tack, I can't help but think about soccer, oftentimes referred to as the beautiful game. And within soccer, within world football, you generally find two camps of philosophers. You have people who are pragmatists, who care primarily about winning. How many games did I win? Did I get the title? What have you? And then there are esthetes who care about winning in such a way that it will be fun and attractive to watch. On the one hand, it's really easy to write the esthetes off as sort of prima donnas who are overly concerned with you know, something seemingly trivial but they actually do have a point, which is that games are meant to be fun. They are meant to be expressions of people. They are meant to be challenges. And if all you are doing is just doing the bare minimum to win the game, you aren't actually meeting the needs of the people who are playing or watching. So... There was a moment of just sobering realism for one of my coworkers when I worked as a mobile game designer, where he tried to make the argument that what we were making should be fun. And I tried to explain to him that in the model of most mobile games, the goal isn't to be fun, it's to be compelling. Right. Because mobile games, like most games, are a business. You can say it's selling out. You can say that they're only doing it for the money. But seriously, why do you assume that like all work that people do for money, game designers, game developers, coders, the artists that go into making these games, why do you assume that they don't want money? Or don't need money. Or are just doing it for fulfillment. Like we should all just be in a utopia where money isn't necessary and where we aren't sustained by people paying us. The thing about mobile games and other games that do have what people consider cash grabs, the people who work on them have to have a knowledge base that would earn them a lot more money if they went into like normal technology fields. It, 
I know it seems like anyone could I know it seems like anyone could design a good game, but honestly, you know when there's a bad designer on a game, you know when there are bad coders on a game, you know when there are bad any number of anything or maybe not even bad, but rushed or inexperienced or uninterested. It's the sort of thing where if they're doing it right, you won't even think about it. But if they do it wrong, you'll know. Exactly. Last week, I recommended the game Tunic. And I have said over and over again within our walls how wonderful that game is and how compelling and how fun that game is. But there are a few little adjustments that I would make that would make it a better play experience for me. And one of those is having to make sure that you explain a mechanic before the person gets to that mechanic. Everything in that game is explained in this really charming rule book that they have created as part of the game. It is literally part of the game where if you are as old as we are and you remember the old school Game Boy and NES instruction manuals, this is a a one-to-one. Obviously, someone went in and lovingly recreated an instruction manual, which you find throughout the game. But there was one thing that was not explained. Everything else has a button prompt. And the one thing you need to do to progress the story, the button prompt wasn't there. And I hadn't found the page that told me what to do. And that's one of those things where everything else is beautiful and lovely and works great. And then you hit that snag and you're just like, the heck do I do now? And so that's those rough edges that I think Brayden is trying to knock off of Quoth. But Quoth is stubborn. I don't know why specifically Brayden has decided that Quoth would make a great tack partner. And I don't know that he thinks that. Yeah, I don't think that Brayden thinks that Quoth is a great tack partner, strictly speaking. As in, Quoth is great at tack or represents a unique challenge at tack. I think that Brayden is enjoying the opportunity to be bold, to be dangerous, and be elegant. If Brayden is who we suspect him to be, namely Cinder and or Master Ash. And Master Ash, who we know has a violent streak. This is Brayden walking right up to his enemy, someone who has blatantly stated antagonism to him and just playing a game with him because he can. And knowing that this person is plotting against him and trying to find out his secrets it's fun for him to play this game with both. He even says, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. This is my sinister plot. I'm going to monologue now. Right. And Quoth buys it. Like, just flat out. He says, okay, yeah, cool. Seems like a nice guy. Quoth is not aware of the concept of double crossing. Or single crossing for that matter. Fair enough. On Twitter, we had an exchange with one of our followers where she asked us, who do you think Brayden is? Like, who do you think we all think that Brayden is? And my answer is Pep Guardiola, who is a soccer manager for Manchester City. 
He also managed Barcelona for a while and is widely credited as the pioneer behind Tiki Taka, which is this concept of playing soccer by using short passes to move the ball down the field and all over the field, dragging the opponent out of position and wearing them out so that your attackers can then just plonk the ball in while the opposing side is just trying to catch their breath. It is fun to watch if you are on the winning side, and it is exasperating to be on the other side of it. So Pep's Barcelona side would string together elaborate 50-pass sequences on the regular, and then just score a goal with ease at the end of it all. And if you're a Barcelona fan, it was a lot of fun. If you were a fan of anybody else, oh, it was a nightmare. So I think also there is a type of person for whom pissing off the opposing side is actually a different kind of metagame. Oh, absolutely. And I think that Braden is doing that now because he's just like, oh, I'm so done with being the nice uncle figure that is trying to hold your hand through this. You little upstart. Ugh. I'm going to wipe the floor with you now. If that's how you want to play, if you want to just play for pure efficacy, he decided to go Jose Mourinho on him. Jose Mourinho, for the record, is a right asshole. Famous as coach for Inter Milan and Chelsea and Real Madrid, then Manchester United, and unfortunately, briefly, Tottenham Hotspur. It wasn't a good time. Mourinho cares only about winning. He does not care about anything else. He would rather win ugly any day than to win pretty. Nothing annoys him more than players expressing themselves his chosen method is nick a goal and then just park the bus in front of your own goal and hope that nothing gets through. If you don't recommend Ted Lasso as your recommended thing of the week, I might, I don't know, have to scream into the void or something. It's a good thing I picked Ted Lasso then. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by football. Football, not hand egg, football. I love this here. He says, the point is to be bold, to be dangerous, to be elegant. The point is to play a beautiful game. Why would I want to win anything other than a beautiful game? Because Braden is first and foremost an esthete. He cares about his own pleasure. He cares about seeing things that are, in his mind, beautiful. He does not care about the end result above all else. He specifically says... You have the basics, but you are missing the whole point. Right now, you are stomping about like a thug. It's like with any truly good game, it's easy to learn, but difficult to master. Chess is easy to learn. Yeah, the rules are pretty straightforward, but there is a world of difference between what I can do, which is to say I'm a fairly novice chess player and someone who's really good at it. Could wipe the floor with you in two seconds flat, which... Braden continues to do with Quoth over and over again, again. And he's showing his attitude and showing his impatience and he's demanding things from Quoth. And Quoth doesn't see it. He thinks that they're still playing this game. What you really learn here is that 
Braden is the sort of person who, if he wanted to destroy Quoth or do something to him, he could at any instant. And that Quoth is still breathing is a testament to his mercy. Quoth is literally a pawn. Yep. Anyway, that's kind of just where we leave off with Braden. And later that evening, Quoth explores his new rooms and finds that he really loves the fact that he has so many chairs that don't have the arms to them, which I got to say, I agree with him. And it's why I like having my piano bench and my cajon in here and also having a love seat sized couch because I can actually play my guitars. My ukulele is fine in an armed chair, but like the guitars just a little bit uncomfortable trying to sit on the edge of a chair. Yeah, I know what you mean. So when I play my guitar in my office, I sit on a stool specifically for that reason, just because trying to play in my office chair just doesn't work. It's also why like when you see a lot of guitar YouTubers, you know, they'll have like the big racing style chairs, but one of the arms is taken off. Exactly. Or they'll just be sitting on a bed, which is terrible for your posture. But he takes some time here to just take a load off. This is his first chance where his mind has not been consumed with survival or trying to solve a difficult riddle. And it's almost like he's reverting back to that time when he was in the woods, just kind of playing his feelings. He does play songs, but then he starts just noodling. One of the things that I thought was kind of fun is he talks about it like getting reacquainted with his loot. He kind of anthropomorphizes the loot periodically. Like, we have to get reacquainted. We have to get to know each other again. Oh, yeah, my old familiar loot. I know where this tuning peg is a little loose. I know exactly how it feels. And we've been away for a while. We haven't really had a chance to play. So I'm just going to spend some time getting back into the feel of things. Like earlier today, you played my electric guitar. And my electric is not the same as your electric or any of the ones that you play. And they all have their own quirks and personalities. You're down-tuning one of the electrics, and so therefore it will play completely differently than the other one. Some of them have frets that will chew up your fingers. Some of them have strings that make the little squeak noise when you have to slide, mostly my acoustic. But it's things that you learn and things that you adapt to and then when you switch to a new one, you have to wrap your mind around the differences. Yeah, different scale lengths, different layouts, things like that. So he's having himself a little bit of a noodle. He's having a bottle of wine while he's at it. I find that with things like playing instruments and bowling, that there is kind of a curve of if you drink a little bit, you get better. And if you drink a lot of it, you get way worse. You want to hit yourself right in that one to two beers or maybe one to two glasses of wine. It kind of buzzed. Just enough to be loose. Not so much that you are incapable of controlling yourself. I would say that's if that's the type of substance that you find relaxing and that's a state that you enjoy being in because not everyone enjoys or is capable of handling the effects of alcohol. 
I know that for me, I've tried on multiple occasions to enjoy being high. And we live in a state where it's legal, perfectly fine to have marijuana. I use it to combat my anxiety and it makes me normal. But if I try to have edibles or if I try to actually get high, I find that I don't like the feeling. And I know that people are like, yeah, get high and then watch a funny TV show. And I find that if I get high and try to watch a funny TV show, I can't follow anything. I don't find anything funny and I just feel distressed. So what I would say is if you want to emulate that, find yourself in a way that you can get in that beginning of a flow state almost where things aren't bothering you, but you can just relax into something. Might be meditation. It might be Tai Chi. Doesn't always have to be a substance. So... While Quoth is just here relaxing and enjoying himself and playing on his lute, he's interrupted by the sudden appearance of Mayor Alvaron. Which would scare the ever-living shirt out of me. Yeah, this is a complete departure from all of the social norms that Quoth has gotten used to. There's no runner announcing his presence or requesting him to go somewhere. There's no rings. There's just, oh, and hey, there's Mayor Alvaron sitting over in the corner scare me so bad it would really it would i i i i could not do that like that would be the worst type of jump scare at that point alvaron starts asking him a little bit about what he can do on the loot show me what you're doing i'm genuinely interested and quoth is like okay this is how i can help you with your courtship of melo and lackless um how'd you get in my room <laughs> turns out that there's a dual purpose behind the new digs. There is a secret passage, which I find very enchanting, between Mayor Alvaron's rooms and these rooms. I don't know if it's a secret one, but it's a private one. Give me that. I am enchanted by things like hidden bookcases that are doors or a wall that opens up. I love the idea in clue of there just being like a little hallway behind the walls. I just, just let me have this. Okay, fine. There's a rotating fireplace. Thank you. So Kvothe decides that if the mayor is serious about this whole courtship thing, the mayor needs to provide Kvothe with some more information about who Melu and Lackless is as a person and not just her family's history. Because family history is all well and good, but it doesn't tell you who someone is. Quoth also asks for some paper and the freedom to leave the estate and go down to Severn Low at any point. We all know why, except he's not going to tell the mayor that he's trying to get inspiration by courting his own, I don't know, object of the heart. Ugh. But the mayor gets into dangerously almost offensive to Quoth territory by insinuating that Quoth might be a poet and he responds I am a musician how dare you mm, I don't think he'd actually say how dare you considering everything although I kind of get that the mayor is at once a little amused by Quoth's professional pride and also relieved that he doesn't have to give too many weird concessions I mean, it's not like he has to give him a bowl of M&Ms, but has to pick out all the brown ones. I don't think there are any brown ones left. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but that's like a famous rock and roll tour thing. Yeah, I know. I like, thought it was just having a bowl of green M&Ms. Uh, I think somebody did have that. I'm not sure who. That's what I remember. I know Eddie Van Halen was the no brown M&Ms. Ultimately, Quoth doesn't know enough about the world to consider having an extravagant and weird writer. So with that, Quoth then heads down to Tinnery Street and he finds Denna almost immediately. And pretty much all they do is flirt. Almost like they're play acting to one another. Yeah, I can see why. Like, it can sometimes be fun to have that sort of playful, flirtatious banter with someone. And they're both playing roles here. Both playing the stranger who walks up to a woman on the street and says she's pretty. I think that there is a line that they didn't cross where that can be creepy. They clearly know each other quite well. But in this play acting kind of way, they can give each other some of the truths in their soul and laugh it off later as, of course, I was just kind of playing around. I wasn't serious. I didn't mean any of that. They meant every single word of that. They both want to be with one another. And Kvothe is the only one that we get the internal dialogue of. So Kvothe is the one that I can call an idiot for not seeing the truth of the situation that everyone that is reading these books is it's almost like reading the never-ending story and bastion screaming at the characters and the characters are just oblivious because they're characters in a book it's like watching a horror movie and trying to tell the young teenager not to go into the abandoned basement appropriate yes so with that we're at the point where it's time to talk about the Fernimos. And, uh, gotta say, it was slim pickings this week. I apologize. I know there's not even a cheeky answer. I mean, first of all, we can always rule Quoth out because it's never Quoth. So that leaves us with Alvaron, who doesn't really say or do much in all of this. He just shows up in Quoth's rooms unannounced and listens to Quoth's writer and says, yeah, seems reasonable. We've got Denna, who doesn't really do much here except flirt a bit with Quoth and receive some flattery. And then there's Brayden. I mean, we know he's evil, but at least he's having a good time. And he does reveal the importance of living well. And so I think he's who I'm going to choose. Yeah, he is not a good person, but he does reveal something important, which is that life is for enjoying. You know, if you are living your life just for financial success or status or money or any of these external markers, what is even the point? If you are going to live, live. Find something to make it worthwhile. I'd also say that in a more myopic sense, if you're going to play a game enjoy it. The whole point of playing something is enjoyment in some form or fashion. Like I realize that I have stated over and over again that one of my favorite types of games are charming indie games that are about grief or some shirt. And I find things like rhyme to be cathartic. Gree also 
gone home. Like all of these where I am sobbing at the end, but there is a part of me that found the experience enjoyable and therapeutic. And I wouldn't be playing these games if they were painful without some kind of positive, hopeful something back. I don't want nor do I enjoy things that have an absolute bleak worldview. And I don't like things that don't have that lovely wrap-up at the end that can bring you back up out of the depths of whatever the game designers or the narrative designers or whatever made you feel. But it's like a Pixar movie. Damn it, Pixar, you made me cry again. But they're beautiful stories and worth watching. So to play a game that you hate playing, you have the option to just put it down. And you should. Don't ever let anyone tell you you're playing a game wrong if you are enjoying it. Also, you can enjoy it for just the sheer challenge of something. Super Meat Boy is super challenging. Ori and the Blind Forest, before they made checkpoints happen in places in the middle of chase sequences... I was stubborn and I enjoyed every second of the 400 and something odd deaths that I had before (laughs) they made the definitive edition. The point is that pure pragmatism is a way to survive, but it's not a way to live. You got to find what is a beautiful game for you and find a way to live your life authentically. So with that, let's move on to the interesting fact of the week. I believe it's your turn. It is. And Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite is a wonderful name for this episode because my interesting fact goes thusly. So while it is incredibly tempting to look at the state of the world and only see the doom and the gloom and the darkest timeline reading of things, because, I mean, we have all been living through anxiety-inducing... Shirt. I would like to instead draw your attention to the fact that at least some elements of the future that we have been promised by science fiction, and specifically Star Trek, are closer than we might have known. So I'm pretty sure that we're all aware of things like VR headsets by now, and that you've probably even heard of Microsoft's HoloLens technology. Yep. But the news that I've found interesting about this project lately is that they've already developed it to the point where they can do a 3D rendering of a person that can be, quote, beamed (laughs) to the HoloLens wearer's headset in real time. So, like, the person's likeness as well as real-time movements and audio as, like, a hologram in somebody else's HoloLens. They have the 3D array of cameras that can capture the 3D points of where the person is in the room can be projected to another person halfway around the world. That's pretty rad. And it's stable. I'm sure that we've all been on Zoom calls where it just glitches the heck out. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is that video isn't nearly as much data as a 3D rendering of a person. So of course there's still gonna be glitches and things because wireless communication, wired communication, all of this stuff is just not perfect but it's stable and it doesn't just consistently drop because of the overload of data. That's pretty rad. Yeah, so that's really awesome. But 
that's not brand new news. Lots of people know that that exists. But to me, it's still very fascinating to hear about that because it would be really cool to have a team in Seattle talking to a team in Hyderabad via HoloLens technology. I mean, yeah, right now you have to have a HoloLens headset and they're pretty heavy lunchboxes that get stuck on your face, but it means that we're getting closer. However, the thing that is actually tipping this over into the realm of Star Trek becoming reality is that back in October of 2021, the HoloLens team was able to beam a real-time holographic projection to a member of the crew of the ISS. Oh, wow. Who was wearing a HoloLens headset. So they're billing this as a real-life EMH. (laughs) The emergency medical hologram from Voyager specifically. Or at least this is kind of a precursor to that. So this means that they were able to demonstrate a stable connection with a far-distant, fast-moving location. For those that don't know, the ISS orbits the Earth at 4.76 miles per second, or 17,500 miles per hour, and goes a full circuit around the planet every 90 minutes. NASA is hoping that this technology will improve the success of future long-term space exploration and help combat loneliness and other challenges inherent in long-duration spaceflight by providing more human connection and preserving astronauts' mental health during missions. Because one of the major issues is isolation. You think about the past two and a half odd years where we've basically been living in isolation. Right. Why do you think Zoom became so popular in the last couple of years? And popular not just for businesses, but for personal use. Yep, exactly. Because we want to have personal connection. Yeah, I can definitely see some real utility in this. I know a lot of people would definitely love to have that option to be remotely connected in ways that feel a little more tactile and present than just staring into a screen. Absolutely. Now, we need to get that technology to move into spaces that aren't just in front of your eyes. But that's step one. And it's also a step towards... Not just the way that VR games work now, but almost that hollow suite feel where you can be immersed in a 3D environment with other people. That's pretty rad. So with that, it's time to move on to our thing of the week. It is your turn, and I think I've guessed it. Yeah, you already did. I hope you don't include that in there and spoil it for the rest of everyone. Uh, too late. So I have chosen Ted Lasso. If you've listened to the pod for a bit or you know me personally, you know that I'm a lifelong soccer fan and I have a particular passion for the Premier League. I first became aware of Ted Lasso back in 2012 when NBC Sports got the rights to the Premier League and aired as sort of a uh, primer for new fans, the series of advertisements with Jason Sudeikis as Ted Lasso, who is an American football coach in every sense of the word. As in, he is American, and he coaches American football, and he is hired to coach Tottenham Hotspur, my team. And so it follows Ted bumbling through London and not really understanding football culture in England or anything like that. Mostly it's making a mockery of him, and he's playing kind of an ugly American stereotype. 
but he's generally good-natured about everything. It was pretty funny. When I heard about a full-length show, I was naturally curious. However, it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I was actually able to sit down and get into it just because I didn't want to add another streaming service to our already large library of streaming services. However, I learned about the show Severance, also the movie Coda, and was like, well, there's a free couple weeks or week or whatever. Why don't we try it? And if we don't like it, we could get rid of it. Okay. I'm glad we did that just because, as I suspected, Ted Lasso is right up my alley. Before you get into your recommendation, I do want to just say minor spoilers, potential going forward for Ted Lasso. If you don't want to know anything about it and you just want to go in fresh, skip this. Just fast forward through Will. Now, naturally, there are a few changes between the show and the original premise in the advertisements. For one thing, instead of going to a real team, Ted takes over a fictional team called AFC Richmond, and they give a reason for why someone would actually take the objectively stupid decision of hiring an American football coach who knows nothing of soccer, or England for that matter, to coach a Premier League team. And that's because Rebecca, who is the new owner of the club, wants to tank it pretty much as an act of revenge against her ex-husband, who was the previous owner and had to give up the club as part of their divorce agreement. It's got shades of the producers. A little bit. Ted takes the job. And one of the things that they talk about here is why would he take this job? I mean, he is a college football coach, you know, who has done pretty okay for himself, but isn't what you would call like a national sensation. He's mostly viral for just being a good guy who his players love, but it is kind of a goof. That gives us our clue that there's maybe something else going on here. One of the things that happens is that everyone underestimates Ted, both because he openly admits he knows nothing about football and he also seems utterly guileless. Like, he is an open book. He is universally kind and generous and seemingly always happy. Those are the people you gotta check in on. Well, and part of it is a lot of people mistake his kindness and generosity for stupidity. But there's more going on behind the mustache and aviators than people realize. His boundless positivity and sunny disposition hides a profoundly lonely soul who is desperate for connection. We also learn that his hermeneutic of generosity reflects not a naive blindness to the failings of the world around him, but rather an informed decision to look for the goodness in people. One of the things that makes Ted Lasso's generosity work is that there is one scene that really serves, I think, as a key to understanding both him and the show's worldview. And I think it's something that we could all learn from. It is a scene where Ted is playing darts with Rupert, who is Rebecca's ex-husband, the former owner of the club. And in that scene, there is one quote that really constantly sticks with me. And it is, be curious instead of being judgmental. Ted is someone who is used to being underestimated and is okay with it. But one thing he doesn't do is write people off based on a snap judgment. He is curious about who they are 
he is curious about them as people and he wants to know them better and he wants to help them. One of the things I think that is great, it's easy to write the show off as just a great big warm blanket, but it really does interrogate the dark side of Ted's life. Like I say, someone who would uproot his life to move halfway around the world to coach a sport he knows nothing about is not the actions of someone who is happy with their current lot in life. And it really interrogates that and also asks some really important questions about mental health and how we can be kinder to ourselves and one another. I think that's stuff that we all need. And I think it's just fantastic writing across the board. Of course, all of this wouldn't work if the show weren't also wickedly funny. The writing is so good. It is amazing. So one of the things that I absolutely love is that, first of all, none of the characters is a true villain. We get to understand what makes them tick, even when they do things that are antagonistic, that are horrible. All of them are allowed to be more complicated than our initial understanding of them. You know, there is just a lot of creative talent, both in front of and behind the camera that makes that happen. So obviously you have Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt and Brett Goldstein in front of the camera, but you also have Bill Lawrence, who is the creator of Scrubs, who works as one of the producers on the show. And the cast itself is just fantastic. So. In addition to Jason Sudeikis, you've got Brendan Hunt as Ted's loyal weirdo intellectual assistant coach, Coach Beard. That's his only name. We don't know what his first name is. Apparently, it's just Coach Beard. We've got Brett Goldstein as the veteran midfield hardman Roy effing Kent, who is an absolute nightmare to opposing players, but is also a total softy behind the scenes. We've got Hannah Waddingham as the club owner and would-be villain Rebecca Welton, who we quickly learn is far deeper than she appears and actually far more sympathetic, even as she's initially an antagonistic figure. We've got Nick Muhammad as the kit manager turned assistant coach Nathan Shelley, who has a very fascinating arc throughout all of this. And then Jeremy Swift as the gentle-natured director of football operations Leslie Higgins. And then finally, I think one of the most interesting ones is Juno Temple, who plays what would be normally just a fairly thankless role as the WAG. In British parlance, WAG is wives and girlfriends. They're sort of generally treated as side-supporting characters in football. So she plays Keely Jones, who initially is the girlfriend of one of the star players on the team. And she ends up being far more intelligent and savvy than anyone gives her credit for, except for Ted. She goes on to have a really fascinating arc throughout the show that isn't defined by her romantic relationships. So some really good character work there, some great writing, absolutely worth watching. So with that, Diamond Dogs on three! (laughs) So with that, let's move on to our seven words. I have seven words from the book this time. So I have a couple of good picks, I think. First, it's been an exciting couple of days. I have, but this, this is something else entirely. I nearly had you that last time. It should prove most convenient, your grace. And then you must take me for a fool. And the one I actually chose was, perhaps in time you can convince me. I like it. 
All right, so you had words from life. What'd you pick? So I do have one more from the book that I do want to say because it just exemplifies the frustration I have with the central romance. My heart stepped sideways in my chest. Sounds like a condition. Sounds like a you problem, both. So what are your seven words? Well, if you follow our Instagram, you've gotten a little bit of a spoiler this week because I posted a photo of when I wrote down my seven words before I wrote down all of the rest of the notes that I have for this episode. My seven words this week are, today is a good day to read. That's a good one. Thank you. I also think it plays really nicely into our somewhat Star Trek-y themed episode. Today is a good day to die. Read. I said read, not die. Not die. Well, it's very Worfian of you. Thank you. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me, too. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone when we'll be reading an entirely different book. It will either be The City We Became or it will be The Killing Moon, one or the other. Hope you enjoy it. Either one will be fun. Yeah, they're both very awesome. There's no wrong choice, but there will be a choice. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find early access to our episodes, as well as show notes and bonus pods and art and stuff. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! And all of those come before, like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Magic. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse. Why can't I say that? Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness.